Please turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We'll be reading uh, and looking at the first 11 verses of, of that chapter. As a bit of a background, uh, over the last number of years uh, in conversation uh, during times of uh, ministerial counseling, I've had a, a certain question uh, come up from time to time, and that is, uh, what is the relationship uh, between the believer and uh, the spiritual forces of wickedness, um, the devil, his minions? Uh, what kind of access, if any, does the devil have uh, to believers? Um, is it immediate access? Is it access uh, that is the same as God's access to us? Uh, can believers be demon-possessed? Uh, and those questions have, have prompted me to look once again at this important topic. Who is the devil? What does the balance of Scripture uh, tell us about who the devil is? And, and what is his power? What access does he have to us as believers? And, and what kind of victory do we have in Jesus Christ? And so we're going to be looking at Matthew 4 as, as sort of a, a jumping point for this sermon, but we will be looking uh, at the balance of Scripture on this question tonight. So you'll want to keep out your Bibles so that we can look uh, at a few passages together tonight. From Matthew 4, God's holy word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Who is the devil? Who is the devil? That may seem like a difficult question to answer. Maybe someone's asked you that question, maybe a neighbor or a coworker. And you've maybe struggled to answer that question. It's a somewhat difficult question to answer uh, in no small part because in our modern culture, uh, the devil has been so heavily caricatured. Uh, the devil, you're aware, has been uh, popularly described or traditionally uh, portrayed as, uh, as a horrible creature, uh, repulsive to look at with horns and a tail and a pitchfork. On the other hand, I think we can say that, that much of our society has uh, fairly embraced Satan uh, as a positive symbol of, of independence and, and free thinking. 
There's a, a, out there a satanic-themed hard rock band that has gained some popularity in, in the last number of years, a band called Ghost. And they declare in one of their songs, which is really a, um, a praise song to the devil, they write, he is insurrection, he is spite, he's the force that made me be, he is the disobedience that holds us together. He is this symbol of, of independence and free thinking. Even popular TV has found Satan to be a, a worthy candidate for popular culture. Uh, Fox's show called Lucifer, which just ended after six seasons. I don't know if that's significant. But anyway, the, the show has the devil dissatisfied with his life in hell. So he, he leaves his fiery throne and he retires to Los Angeles, a worthy spot for him to land, I, I would say. And there in L.A., he has a change of heart, and he helps the LAPD fight city crime. You see, all in all, the devil has a fairly good reputation in our society. But the reason for that is that no one really takes the idea of a real personal devil seriously. We're basically left with two familiar pictures of Satan. He's either the ghoulish creature of myth, or he's a popular cultural symbol. But if we actually consider what the Bible says about the devil, we see that nothing could be further from the truth. Because in contrast to the devil of fiction, the Bible shows us that Satan is not a figment of our imagination. He is very real. And he's not just some vague embodiment of evil either, like the dark side of the force in Star Wars. He is personal. He is a living being, and that's something that we noticed here in Matthew chapter 4. Our Lord Jesus is, is driven into the wilderness, and He personally confronts the devil. He is personally tested by Satan. But who is He? What does the Bible say about Him? I want to make one more comment before we dive into this material, and that is that when it comes to the question of the devil, when it comes to the matter of demons, it's important that we are biblical. And some of you might say, well, we're Reformed people. Of course we're going to be biblical. That goes without saying, right? But what I mean is that there is actually a great deal of biblical imbalance on this question in the church. Alistair Begg, in one of his, um, his lectures, points this out. I think his exegesis is pretty solid on this question of the devil in Scripture. And he points out that um, thinking biblically about the devil is more than just believing what the Bible says about Satan. We also need to learn to hold what the Bible teaches in the balance that the Bible gives. We can be imbalanced about the way we think about uh, the devil and demons. We can make them too important, too, too big a part of our understanding of Scripture. We want to avoid overemphasizing the devil as if he's the most important character in all of Scripture or history. At the same time, we also don't want to be ignorant of his presence. We want to understand who the devil is based on the balance of what Scripture teaches. And to do that, we're going to look at there are a number of passages tonight that help us understand uh, a description of Satan. And we're going to see several things tonight. First, that he is a created fallen angel. He is not eternal like God. We're going to see that he's a loser, that he's already defeated. 
uh, by our Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. We're going to see uh, the wonderful uh, message of Scripture that we are called as believers to resist the devil and that we can resist the devil with the strength the Lord gives. And finally, in light of that, we're going to see that he is a, a being that has limited power. He is bound and chained by Christ Himself. Satan, uh, the embodiment of evil, is truly cunning. He's truly relentless. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures tell us, we can be alert, we can be prepared uh, to defend against his attacks. First, who is Satan? The balance of Scripture teaches us that Satan is a fallen angel who exists uh, in rank higher or more exalted than um, other fallen angels or demons. There are a couple of Old Testament passages which uh, theologians will from time to time go to uh, that they believe is a, is a depiction uh, of the fall of Satan. And those are Isaiah 14 verse 12 and Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19. Uh, what do these passages describe? Well, they describe the fall of human nations and human rulers, the fall of Babylon and the fall of the king of Tyre, the humbling of those kings and nations. Uh, but along with some Reformed exegetes, I'm not particularly comfortable uh, turning these passages uh, into clear references to Satan's downfall. I think if we look at the context of those passages, we're not going to turn to them tonight. But I think if we look at the context there, it seems that at very most, they portray in, in poetic language uh, the extravagant pride and pretensions of these earthly rulers and nations, which led to their downfall. Uh, but I'm, I'm uncomfortable interpreting these as clear references to the devil and his fall uh, from heaven. Um, I'm on Calvin's side on this, so I think I'm fairly safe coming to that conclusion. I think we do better to turn to the New Testament um, because there we learn about the person of Satan, the work of Satan, in the midst of the great conflict between uh, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light during and after the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so the clearest reference, I think, uh, to the fall of the devil and his angels is actually found in the last book of the Scriptures, in Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation uh, chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, we read this, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This passage in Revelation makes it clear to us that right now there exist only two kinds of angels. There are the angels of God that, that do His bidding, that do His will as His messengers, as servants. These are described as the host or the army of the Lord. We read about them in Psalm 103. Uh, where they are described as the mighty ones who do His Word, obeying the voice of His Word. There are good angels, the angels of God. But in contrast, there are fallen angels uh, that make up the servants or the army, so to speak, of Satan, the forces of darkness that seek to destroy the works of God. 
And what we read here in Revelation, what it makes clear is that these, these rebellious angels fell by their own choice. Uh, they rebelled against God and His authority by their own decision. And the rest of the New Testament gives us uh, some clue as to what their sin was. What was it that led them to fall? The Apostle Paul hints at the sin which brought down uh, Satan in 1 Timothy 3, verse 6. He, he warns that those appointed to the office of elder should not be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That is, uh, the condemnation pronounced upon the devil for his own pride, for his own conceit. Uh, Jude 6 tells us something similar, that the, the fallen angels refused to stay within their own position of authority and 1 Timothy 5 says, they are now destined or elected for destruction. They refuse, these angels, to stay within their position of authority, to remain the servants of God, subjected to His authority. It was pride that led them to rebel and fall. But the bottom line, the first thing we need to notice about the devil and demons is this, that the devil, like all angels of God, is a created being. It's not as if God and the devil are two equal ultimates. Uh, they exist on the same plane, one good, the other evil. It's not as if God and the devil are, are two equal and eternal forces. That's not the case at all. Only God exists in timeless eternity. Only God is uncreated and a necessary being. The devil is a created being, and he is culpable for his own sin, the sin that led him to fall. Like everything else, Satan was originally created very good, but in accord with the mysterious will of God, the devil fell, and God has given him some power on earth. But we must remember always about the devil is that he is subject to God. He is still under God's thumb under His authority, God who is so sovereign that He can even use the devil in His wiles and His craftiness to bring about God's good purposes on earth and even in our lives. And so, in the final analysis, as a created fallen angel, the devil never operates outside of the decree or the will of God. And that's why Luther, in a way that only Luther could say it, said, even the devil is God's devil. But he's a created fallen angel. The second thing we notice about the devil is that he is a defeated enemy. We read in Matthew 4 here uh, the encounter of Jesus and the devil in the wilderness, and we quickly note the devil had no power over Jesus. Uh, it wasn't the devil that drove him into the wilderness to be tempted. It was the Spirit of God that drove him into the, into the wilderness to be tempted. Uh, Satan had no power to deceive Jesus, even with his tricky uh, exegesis. And when Jesus says, Satan, be gone, Satan has no power to resist. I like to think that he fled the scene. After all, we are told to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. I can not imagine that he did anything less than flee from our Lord Jesus. 
The devil had no power over Jesus. He is a defeated foe. And that's the very thing that Jesus assured his disciples of in John 14, verse 30, before his crucifixion. Jesus said to his disciples, Satan has no claim on me. He's a powerful adversary to a point, but he has not an ounce of influence over our Lord Jesus Christ. And and so Jesus assures his disciples that the devil and his hosts will be defeated and judged at the cross through the work of the Spirit, and that's exactly what happened. At Jesus' cross at Calvary through his death, Jesus effectively destroyed the devil and his power over sin and death. We read that, that wonderful good news in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, 14 to 15, we read this, "...since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things." He partook of our human nature, "...that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery." Scripture tells us that that although for a while uh, God allowed the devil to hold limited power, at the cross of Jesus Christ, he began to take that power back. At the cross, he triumphed over all the powers of darkness. Paul talks about this in Colossians 2.15. He says at the cross, through Jesus' death, he disarmed rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them through His victorious death on the cross, putting away sin and death and the devil. And that's not just Jesus' victory. That's the victory of believers as well. When we are united to Jesus Christ by faith, when we are joined with Him in everything that He has and has done by grace, we also with Him triumph over the devil and his demons. Ephesians 1 verse 20 tells us that because Christ has been raised from the dead by God's power, because he has been seated in the heavenly places in a position above all rule and authority and power and dominion, well, because we belong to Jesus, we stand with him. We stand with him above all powers, uh, all devilish powers. And Paul promises the church in Romans 16 that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Where do we hear that? That's the first gospel promise in all of Scripture. First made to Adam and Eve in chapter 3, verse 15. To Adam and Eve in the garden that, that God would create enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan, and Satan's head would be crushed. Well, the God of peace, Paul says, will crush Satan under your feet. And really, he's already done that at the cross. Satan is defeated. He's a loser. There's no chance for the home team losing in this case because the devil was defeated at Calvary. He has no hold on Christ, no claim on our Savior, and therefore he has no hold on Christians. And that's why, in the third place here, Peter says we are to resist the devil. The Bible never says we are to run from the devil. It's the devil who flees from the Christian as we resist him in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the third thing we notice about the devil from the Scriptures, that he is resistible. He is resistible. I'd like to read just a a short portion 
of Peter's first letter to the church here in chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 5, 6 through 11, Peter says this, "'Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him.'" Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever Amen. Paul, Peter is writing to the saints to, to call them to submit to God even in the midst of suffering at the hands of wicked people, even in the midst of uh, the devil's uh, temptation. And he reminds them that uh, our life as pilgrims among pagans is a life lived uh, in the midst of a great spiritual battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. There's a lot of military language here. He says you must be watchful. You must be sober-minded. You must not be naive but well-informed about this, this spiritual warfare in which you are engaged. But Peter says you are not ill-equipped to engage in this warfare. We have been adequately uh, equipped with the weapons, with the tools. Uh, we are well-armed for this fight. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the armor of God which prepares us to fight and to win in this battle. He says in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 and following, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on, clothe yourselves in the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, he says, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. The promise of God's Word is that if we have armed ourselves... Uh, with the mind of Christ, with the armor of God, with the strength of the Holy Spirit, we can stand firm in our resistance of the devil. James 4 verse 7 says that we can resist the devil in submission to God, and he will flee. He will retreat from us. The New Testament's consistent about that, that the devil is resistible in the strength of the Lord. But here, a question is often raised. Can Christians, true believers, uh, be demon-possessed? And I think the answer, based on the balance of Scripture, is clearly uh, no, that believers cannot be demon-possessed, despite what some churches might claim. Listen as I read from Colossians chapter 2, 9 through 10. We read here, for in Him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him, 
who is the head of all rule and authority. What is Paul saying to the church here? He is assuring the church that Christ's death has given real victory to the Christian. You and I have been given fullness in Jesus Christ. Our fullness is in Jesus who has defeated the devil and all powers that would stand against him. This is the Lord Jesus we read in Colossians 2 who has already disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. True believers have been delivered from these powers. We've been rescued from the dominion of darkness. We belong to a different kingdom. We have, we have changed addresses. We have moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And Satan has no ability to access the kingdom of Christ and pull us out. We are wrapped up in the power of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in our lives and fills our lives. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that our bodies, uh, these vessels, are temples of the Holy Spirit that God fills by His Holy Spirit. The Apostle John in 1 John 4.4 assures us that we are not from the devil. We are from God now that we belong to Him, and we have overcome the spirit of the Antichrist. He says, for he who is in you... He who fills you, the Spirit of God, is greater than he who is in the world, the devil. The Holy Spirit fills our lives, believers. And he isn't about to make room. He's not going to share that dwelling place with the devil and his minions. And so I don't think it's possible for uh, a life that is filled with the fullness of life in Christ, a life filled and dominated by the power of the Spirit of God to have a demon. Because the Holy Spirit answers the door of the Christian soul at any attempts at repossession. It's as if there's a, there's a not welcome mat at the door of the Christian soul. And the Holy Spirit's message is clear. You're not welcome here, demon. This is a child of God. When Jesus died, He defeated you, Satan. So go back to hell where you belong. This person belongs to God's kingdom. He belongs to God Himself. And so while I do think it's possible for human beings to be possessed by demons, we certainly see that in the New Testament, at a time when the, the, the clash between God's kingdom uh, and the kingdom of Satan was at its height, I do not think that demon possession is the experience of a true believer, especially since we have been equipped as believers with every tool to resist the devil. And one of those tools is the intercession, the help of Christ Himself. When Jesus uh, prayed His high priestly prayer in John 17, what did He ask the Father? He said to the Father, don't take my children out of the world. Don't remove them from, from the realm of Satan's influence. But he did pray, keep them from the evil one. Keep them from his grasp. Well, if that's Jesus' prayer, would God fail to answer it? If 
God prays, Lord, keep my children, keep my loved ones from the devil, God will most certainly do it. And so we are assured uh, by 1 John chapter 3, not only that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, but in John 5, 1 John 5, Jesus, we read, protects us. He does not let the evil one touch us. So, as regards the devil, we are called simply to do this, stand firm. We are to put on the armor and fight. We are to resist. That's all that we are called to do as believers in relation to demonic activity because Christ has already won the victory. The power to vanquish the devil was already poured out victoriously at Calvary, and we have that victory because of the Spirit of God. That's why we can claim this promise of 2 Thessalonians 3. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you. He will guard you, He says, against the evil one. God tells us that we have been given the ability to resist the flesh, the world, and the devil. The The problem is that we often don't believe that promise. And we think that Uh, that we can't resist. We sometimes fall into thinking that sin is is not our responsibility, Uh, thinking that there is something outside of us that is keeping us from obedience. Uh, Many Christians have fallen into the way of thinking uh, that is common in our culture today. We want a quick fix. We want an emotional experience to make us feel like trusting God rather than using the means that God has already given us to resist the devil and to discern truth from error. Oftentimes, we might think that we are uh, being influenced directly by the devil, um, but it's a sign not of demon possession, but of spiritual immaturity, failing to use the means, the tools that God has given to us, failing to, to come to hear the proclamation of His Word. Uh, not valuing the oversight and care of the elders, not making use of this powerful means of prayer that God has given to us, cutting ourselves off from the church and regular worship and fellowship with other believers, but not using those tools, not using those means uh, for this spiritual battle, looking for other means of assurance. That's not a sign of maturity, but spiritual immaturity. The confession of the mature Christian is the confession of Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1. I'm not my own, but I I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Not only has He paid for all of my sins, He's delivered me. He's delivered me from the tyranny of the devil, and He is so in control of my life. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven, all things in fact, must work together for my salvation. It belonged to Christ. He's rescued us from the tyranny of the devil, and so we are called to resist the devil. We can resist the devil in the power through the means of the Holy Spirit, and he will flee. Finally, very briefly, uh, the devil, though he is powerful, the Scripture makes clear, he is bound and chained. He is limited. 
Again, going back to that picture of Satan in Revelation. In Revelation 20, we have a vision of a great dragon, that ancient serpent who is bound, who is controlled by Christ, later released according to the will of God. But what's going to happen ultimately? He's going to be tossed into the lake of fire. He will experience ultimate judgment. Um, Satan is living on borrowed time. His end is coming swiftly. We must remember, once again, that Satan is not like God. He is not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. Sometimes we imagine that, 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 that the devil has equal access to our thoughts and our souls the way God does. Nothing could be further from the truth. Only God knows all things. The devil is not all-powerful. He can only do what God permits him to do. He is like that pit bull, uh, chained to a stake. He can only go so far, as far as God allows him to go. He's not all-powerful. He's not everywhere present. We tend to think that, again, the devil is on one shoulder and God on the other, and they have equal access to our minds and our souls. They have equal influence upon us. The devil is not everywhere present as God is. Satan's power is limited by the will of God who faithfully protects his own so that the evil one cannot touch us. And so Calvin, in quoting on the devil, said this, We have been forewarned that an enemy relentlessly threatens us, an enemy who is the very embodiment of rash boldness, of military prowess, of crafty wiles, of untiring zeal and haste, of every conceivable weapon and of skill in the science of warfare. We must then bend our every effort to this goal, that we should not let ourselves be overwhelmed by carelessness or faint-heartedness, but on the contrary, with courage rekindled, stand our ground in combat. That is the call of Scripture of God to the Christian, to stand firm in the promises of God, to resist the devil in the strength that God gives to keep close to the cross of Christ where the victory over the devil was secured, to hold on to the promise of God, and the ancient serpent will flee from us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we read all of these things about our great enemy, that ancient serpent, the devil, and, and these things are difficult for us, we admit. These things are, are frightening to talk about, but we thank You that Your Word comes to us to comfort us, um, to give us uh, a sense of clarity and balance on these things. We thank You for what the balance of Scripture teaches us tonight, that the devil is a defeated enemy, that his uh, days are numbered because he has been defeated at the cross of Christ, is living on borrowed time. Thank You for the promise that He is a resistible foe, and that we can resist Him uh, in the strength of Your Spirit through the means that You have given to us to engage in spiritual warfare. We thank You that 
The devil is limited in his access to us, limited in his power. And that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Lord, help us to be biblical and then to keep in balance what your word teaches about the devil and his power and his authority and access. Uh, give us a sense of reality about our Christian living in the midst of this uh, spiritual battle that's being waged all, all around us. Help us to be honest about our own sin and our own rebellion, about our own weakness and failure to believe your promises, uh, our failure to, to fight the devil with the tools that you have already given to us. Help us to grow up in spiritual maturity, not relying on our feelings uh, to be assured in this battle, uh, but to walk by faith, not by sight. We thank You for uh, this day of worship. Thank You for feeding us from Your Word, for allowing us to enter Your courts with joy and thanksgiving. And as we go into this world, as we go into the world where satanic activity uh, is quite evident, uh, that we would put on the armor of God, that we would stand firm, we would be sober-minded and watchful, and that by the strength of Your Spirit, through the insight of Your Word, we would stand firm and resist the devil that he would run from us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in light of the topic of tonight's sermon, I thought it would be appropriate to sing that, that triumphant hymn of Martin Luther, rejoicing in the triumph of God over all forces that stand against him, the devil himself. Let's turn to number 244, A Mighty Fortress is our God. We'll stand together and sing all four of those stanzas, number 244.
Now, brothers and sisters in the Lord, go forth into the world to serve our risen, reigning Christ in the power that He gives with this parting benediction from the book of Jude. Now unto Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.